morning, Gateway. I am, uh, you have no idea how happy I am to be here today. Uh, for those of you who are part of Gateway, yes, thank you. Uh, for those of you who are part of Gateway, uh, I uh, missed last Sunday, Easter Sunday, and this is the first time I've missed Easter Sunday because um, Diane and I had COVID, which is code for we were almost dead. Uh, I don't know, I'm really resentful of those of you who've had it over the last year who have said things to me like, oh, it was just a bad cold. It was not just a bad cold for Diane and I. We were, we were in bed for days. I had a fever for three days that I, I just couldn't break. Uh, sleeping down in the basement because it's colder, laying on the bathroom floor because it, it was even colder, exhausted. Um, we're feeling better, uh, not sick anymore, but you know how these things go. It, it takes a while to kind of get your energy back, especially when you're 103. So um, my name is Ed, if you're uh, visiting with us, and I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and uh, we're, as, as Jordan said, we're starting a new series of conversations today, and um, the, the book of Exodus is just, uh, it's an awesome, compelling story in and of itself, but it also points, it, it foreshadows, it points toward just like the, the, the most epic of all stuff. And today, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna look at it as this prism that uh, points forward. And if you'll bear with me, uh, you know, I'm gonna go a little bit old school today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put on my best Billy Graham. Um, for those of you who are familiar with Billy Graham, uh, if you are exploring faith and have been circling around um, Gateway and faith for a while, and I know that there are a few of you who are and have been, boy, I've really been praying for you this week. I want you to know that. And uh, for most of the rest of us, um, I just pray that today is going to be a, a rich reminder of what happened uh, for us. So let me, let me kick us off with prayer. Father, I pray that um, my words today would be your words through me, and I pray that you would remove me and uh, forgive me of my sin and anything that would inhibit. I also pray, Lord, for the, all of us that you would... This is an old message for many of us, but uh, I pray that you would speak clear and powerful words of reminder and enrichment and thankfulness. And Lord, if, if there's anyone here today that has not surrendered to you. I pray that today would be the, the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know the word adumbration? <clears throat> I learned this word when I was in the 10th grade. I remember it well. It's a great SAT word. I also learned that, I, it was my theory, high school students, close your ears, don't listen to this, but it was my theory that if you could use the word adumbration in an English paper, it would raise your letter grade by half a, didn't matter what you said. Just you put that word in, it's going to raise your letter grade by half a grade. The word adumbration means foreshadowing. It means uh, seeing something here and, and it foreshadows something in the future. So it's like one of those movies where this character comes on the screen and you know instantly that character is going to be dead before the movie's over. Or, uh, you know, that, that scene in um, 
Pride and Prejudice when uh, Elizabeth uh, tells Mr. Darcy, you are the last man on earth that I would ever give my heart to. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that because she's prejudiced and he's proud or he's prejudiced and she's proud, I never know which is which. Uh, you know that by the end, they're going to get this right and, and there's going to be this romantic coming together. She's going to give her heart completely to him. Well, the Old Testament story of Exodus is God's great adumbration. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. As we read it, we can't help but feel, oh, we're going to see that again. Last week, uh, John uh, preached here on Easter Sunday morning. And I just, it, when you see John, thank him and applaud him. He heard about that on Wednesday, by the way. Um, but in his, in his Easter sermon last Sunday, he reminded us that the resurrection of Jesus is the key to understanding the whole Bible. The resurrection of Jesus is the key to understanding the whole Bible. And in the passage that John talked us through last week, the resurrected Jesus, if you remember from Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus took the disciples through an extensive Bible study and basically explained that the whole story had been pointing to him. It had, the whole story had been one long adumbration. The, the resurrection of Jesus is the key to understanding the whole Bible because it's all about him. It's an adumbration leading to him. Why is that important? Well, for one thing, among others, for one thing, the more we know of God, the more we know his ways, the more we see that this is what he does. He tells his people what he's going to do, both in words, literally, and in symbols. And then he does it, proving himself over and over again to be good and faithful and sovereign. And that means that whatever his will is, that's what's going to happen. He's good, and he's faithful, and he's sovereign, and his adumbrations, his foreshadowings, are a reminder of, of, of that. I love how defiantly Psalm 115 sings about this. If you look at Psalm 115 later, it says this, Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. And then, down in verse 12, the psalmist declares, Look, the Lord remembers us and will bless us, because that is basically what pleases him, to bless us and glorify himself through us. Our God is in heaven, and he's good, and he's faithful, and he's sovereign. And the more we know God and know his ways, the more we see this, and the more confidently and freely we can live. All right, that's background introduction. So last February of 2022, last year here at Gateway, we started a six-week series of conversations we called Rescue. And in that series, we worked our way through the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. If you were here with us, you might remember. During that time, God's people were in exile. Over time, they were oppressed and eventually enslaved. Then a rescuer was born. By the way, he was born during a time when, when all Israelite boys were being killed by Egyptian authorities. But the rescuer uh, was delivered and delivered into the hands of the daughter of Pharaoh, no less. She named him Moses. Eventually, the rescuer had to flee 
Egypt as a criminal and he ended up spending half a lifetime in the desert of Midia while he was there he met his wife he had children he tended his father-in-law's flock of sheep basically he was minding his own business growing old and learning to be comfortable in this new life and then he remet the God of his fathers God Almighty appeared to Moses in a burning bush that was not being consumed and and uh, as soon as we heard this, we thought, oh, something's going to happen here, and we're going to see this again. So God spoke to Moses out of the bush and gave Moses his name, Yahweh, which means basically, I am what I am. And he told Moses that he, Moses, must return to Egypt, that God was going to deliver the children of Israelite descent from Pharaoh's grip, and he was going to use Moses to do it. So the hero, the chosen child, turned criminal, turned fugitive, turned husband, father, turned shepherd manager, finally took a turn toward being the rescuer that he was designed to be. Then we took a commercial break here at uh, Gateway for the Easter season uh, leading up to it and beyond. And then sometime after Easter, we picked up the Exodus story again last year, 2012, in in, uh, Exodus chapter 5. And we walked through it for seven more weeks. During that time, Moses returned to Egypt. He told the, the leaders of the Israelite community what God had said they believed him. Then he told Pharaoh what God had said. Pharaoh did not believe him. And thus began a long series of tests and confrontations between Pharaoh and, and Moses. Really, between God and the God of the Egyptians. God afflicted Egypt with a series of plagues designed to increasingly humble them and weaken them. The Nile was turned into blood. Then frogs emerged in massive numbers. Then gnats, then flies, then then widespread death of their livestock. This is not good stuff. Then then, uh, boils, then hail, then locusts, then great darkness over the land. And throughout the process, Moses repeatedly requested of Pharaoh that people of Israelite descent be allowed to leave. Pharaoh refused. Then Pharaoh negotiated, but refused. Then Pharaoh agreed, but changed his mind and refused. Finally, the last plague was delivered. The death of every firstborn. And this was universally devastating. And that's where we ended last last year. With this tenth incredibly devastating plague so now we're going to take up the story again rescued part three and to to set us up we will read the last paragraph that we ended with last spring summer we're going to look at exodus chapter 12 verses 29 and 30 and this will just pick up the story where we left off last year and Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. As I read Exodus 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 29 through 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. And the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials. And all the Egyptians got up during the night. And there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. You may be seated. 
Okay. So let's get our Billy Graham on. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. This plague affected everyone. From the throne room of Pharaoh to the prisoner in the Egyptian dungeons, everyone experienced the judgment of God. Every house, every village, every family. There were no exceptions. Highborn and lowborn and everything in between. Good and upstanding citizens of good standing and good character, as well as the scum of society. Those who were nobly trying to build a better Egypt, along with those who were doing nothing but for their own personal gain. Those who had treated the Israelites fairly and those who had abused them. No special cases, no outliers, no exceptions. Everyone experienced the judgment of God. Except for those who had painted the blood of a spotless lamb around the doorposts of their homes. This is what God told the children of Israel to do in preparation for this. He told them what was coming. And he, by that act of faith, a distinction was made. By that act of faith, a distinction was made. The distinction, listen, the distinction was not between Israelites and Egyptians. The, the descendants of Israel were not morally superior to the Egyptians. The distinction was based solely on the faith-filled decision to apply the blood of the lamb to their doorposts. The distinction was based solely on the faith-filled decision to apply the blood of the lamb to their doorposts. In other words, if you followed God's command to Moses and sacrificed a one-year-old spotless lamb for your family, then painted the doorframe of your home with the blood of that lamb, then because of that death, because of the substitution of that death, then death did not come to your firstborn. The death of the lamb substituted for the death of your firstborn and you signified it by painting the doorframe of your home. But if you did not sacrifice a one-year-old spotless lamb and used the blood of that lamb to paint your doorframe, then Regardless of who you were, death came to the firstborn in your home that night. Let's back up for a second. And let's, let's, let's remember the, the full story arc here so we can completely appreciate the adumbration. So we can really see uh, the foreshadowing here. If you know the story of the Bible, then you know about Adam and Eve. They were created by God and placed in a perfect garden. They were commanded to flourish and uh, to be fruitful. They were invited into a creative and direct communion with God and with one another. They were told to have dominion and rule over the earth, to subdue it, to enjoy it. And they were given one parameter. Remember, do not eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And then God told them, if you eat it, you will die. I've often wondered about this. How did they even know what death was? This couldn't have made sense to them. But then it didn't need to make sense. They just needed to obey. So imagine this. Imagine if we'd been able to be an objective observer somewhere out in space, and we'd been watching this play out like a movie on a giant screen. We've got our popcorn. We've got our soda. 
I'll bet you we would, when we heard this, I'll bet you we would have immediately thought, oh no, this is not going to go well. This is certainly adumbration of something terrible. And it was. And it didn't go well. Adam and Eve ate the fruit and sin and death entered the world. And from that time until now, sin and death have been the prevailing universal law over all things. All of us who are descended from Adam and Eve, that includes all of us, are broken and bent by sin. And as a result, we will die eternally, cut off from God's goodness and his faithfulness and his sovereignty, cut off from communion with him, from fellowship with him and with one another. In fact, we have abundant evidence that this is the true state of affairs. We are dying even now. I felt it, in fact, begged for it last week. Everyone you know is dying and you know it. There are no special cases. There are no outliers. There are no exceptions. As the Apostle Paul would eventually explain to us in the New Testament, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then three chapters later, he summarizes that and he says, and the wages of our sin, what we get from that sin is death. From the best to the worst of us. From the Nobel Prize winner to the pathological liar, from the dad of the year to the pedophile, God's judgment will be experienced by everyone. Our sin is not equal, but it is universal. And the law of sin and death is also universal. The plague is coming for us all, without exception. And as I just said, from the story of Adam and Eve, we learn this on page two in the Bible. And it echoes through every story we read and every story throughout human history, including we see the echo of this refrain in the story of the Exodus. Death came to every household, we're told, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. Now let's go back to our movie seats. We're out in the cosmos somewhere. We've got our popcorn. We've got our soda. We've just come back from getting refills. And we watch as Israelite families act on the commands that God gave Moses. We watch as they, by faith, identified year-old spotless lambs, one per family. We watch as, by faith, based on what... Uh, God had said to Moses, they sacrificed those lambs, ceremonially eating the meat and staining the door frames of their homes with the blood of those lambs. By faith, they believed something terrible was coming and that this act of faith would be a substitute for them. They would avoid the terrible thing that was coming because of the sacrifice of that lamb and the blood on their doorposts. And us... Out in our galactic seats, watching on with interest, we would have been thinking, oh, something's happening here. We're going to see this again. This is adumbration. And it was. You know, throughout his life, Jesus was called many things, but probably some things that aren't recorded for us in the biographies that weren't very good. But... One of the most interesting things that he was ever called is what 
John the Baptist called him. Once when John was preaching at Jordan River, he saw Jesus coming and John said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Did he even know what he was saying? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And us, out in our movie seats, had we been watching with our popcorn and soda, when we heard John say that, being the savvy movie watchers that we are, we would have thought, there it is. That's what we've been waiting for, finally. And then a couple years later, when Roman nails hammered Jesus' hands and feet to the cross, and we watched as the blood of that precious lamb trickled down that cross, we would have known. This is the moment we've been waiting for. The climax, the final death, the real substitute. This is how God ultimately does it. This is what that whole earlier story was pointing toward. The adumbration is complete. This is the death of death and the beginning of life. Finally, it's here. After the terrible thing happened uh, that night in Egypt, the descendants of Israel walked out of that country and out of their slavery. So we'll pick up our story right here next week. But before we end, I need to give you a a little bit of a commercial teaser of uh, where we're going next week and and for the rest of the summer. And we're going to circle this uh, drain a couple more times before we end. So I'm going to read the next paragraph, Exodus 12, 31 and 32. It takes us into the next part of the story. And I'm going to wake us up again. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word as we read one more paragraph from Exodus chapter 12. So during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people. You and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said and go. And also bless me. That sounds almost pitiful, doesn't it? You may be seated. So I want you to notice two things about this before we quit today. Number one, this is complete capitulation. Pharaoh gives up completely. There is no compromise here. This is utter surrender because God does not negotiate. This is full surrender from Pharaoh. But notice this is not repentance. No, Pharaoh will later change his mind yet again and go after and try to retrieve his slaves yet again, but it will be too late. God will overwhelm him and he will pay the ultimate price. But here, at this point, this is capitulation. God will have his way. Remember, our God is in heaven and he does what he pleases. And that's good news for you and me. The second thing I want you to notice is that the rescue happens, please don't miss this, the rescue happens as soon as the blood is applied, but not before. They already had a rescuer. Moses had been around, he was 80 years old at this point. He'd been around 40, the first 40 years of his life, he was living among them in in Pharaoh's castle. 
God had already given Moses his personal name. He'd already made himself even more intimate with his people. And God had already performed a number of miracles here. Plus the people had already believed Moses. I mean, there was some grumbling, but they were falling in line behind him. Many great spiritual and emotional conditions had already been met. And yet, rescue was not secured until the Lamb's blood was painted on their door frames. Not until there was a substitute because the human condition had to be satisfied. Sin and death reigned over every person of Egyptian descent and over every person of Israelite descent. That condition had to be satisfied. So God allowed for temporary satisfaction. The death and the blood of a one-year-old spotless lamb became the substitute and that death substituted for their death and and that death was God's great adumbration pointing to the death the final ultimate death the death of death and the death of God the Son the perfect lamb a fully satisfactory completely sufficient substitute and there is no rescue for us until we paint the doorposts of our hearts and lives with the blood of that sacrifice. Even if, there's, even if there's great spiritual stuff going on in your life, you've been coming to Gateway for a while, or you've been, you've been exploring spiritual things for years, there is no rescue without painting the door frames of your life with the blood of the Lamb. Until we say yes to Jesus, until we, by faith, believe that his blood acts as a substitute for our blood, his death covers our death, until we accept and believe that, there is no coverage for us, there is no rescue. There is no exception to this. From the nicest, best person to the scum of society, there are no outliers, there are no special cases. The law of sin and death must be satisfied. We spend, our in, we spend our entire lives hanging on by a breath, literally one breath away from ultimate death and absolute separation from God. Look, because God is involved in our world, even when we don't recognize it, because God is involved in our world, we can't imagine this condition. It is too terrible. It's too dire to even conceive some kind of existence completely cut apart from God forever. And the images that the, the, the authors of the Bible conjure up when they, when they get in touch with this and when they see a glimpse of this or when God speaks to them about this are horrible images. And that is our future. This is the wage for the life we have lived, even the best of us, without exception. We need to be rescued. And that rescue does not happen until we paint the doorframe of our hearts and lives with Jesus. We spend much of our energy kidding ourselves, don't we? 
denying the real truth of our existence. We lean into stuff and experiences as if they had sustaining power. We artificially prop ourselves up and we dance through our lives occupied and distracted, but we know the truth. Anytime we stop long enough to reflect, even for the briefest moments of time, we know that we are suspended by the tiniest thread over a dire, terrible forever and eternal death and separation. There is no exception to this. Only provision has been made for a substitute. God has made a way. So have you painted the doors of your life with the blood of Jesus? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you've sensed God's presence before. I'm not asking if amazing things have happened in your life. Have you surrendered? Have you accepted his sacrifice in your stead? This is the point of God's entire activity toward us. Have you surrendered? You can do that right now. You can tell him. You can call out to him. Jesus' best friend, John, in, in his introduction, his biography, he put it like this. He said, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave them the right to enter into God's family, to enter into life, to overcome that death. If you have never done that, I want to urge you to do that today. Don't leave today without doing that. It's as simple as saying, finally I get it. Finally I see. Will you come into my life and save me, rescue me? Will you paint my life with your blood? God eventually gave Moses elaborate instructions for his people to remember this lamb and this experience annually in a meal that they called Passover. And it was a, it was a very, very elaborate audiovisual display reminding them of this epic event when they, that last night in Egypt, when they, each family, sacrificed a one-year-old spotless lamb, took its blood, painted it literally on the doorframe of their homes, that blood becoming the substitute for their blood, that death becoming the substitute for their death, and once a year, they would remember that in the Passover meal. Again, so, uh, we've done, uh, of the Christian Passover here at Gateway. Some of you have celebrated Passover before. It, it is a, a, a long, elaborate meal in which they remember these events and everything that happened during their time in Egypt, and, and especially this last night. It is so striking, isn't it? That that's the meal Jesus celebrated on the last night of his life with his disciples. And at that meal... That Passover meal, remembering an event that had happened 1,400 years earlier. At that meal, Jesus said, this bread, it's my body, broken for you. By the way, you guys, that long ago, that was adumbration. 
pointing to me and what I'm about to do. And this cup, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up if they would. We're going to participate in uh, that this morning. I want you to do this. Um, for many of you, this is a, a decision that, that you made long ago or months ago or years ago. This morning, as we do this, I want you to remember that time in your life when you painted the doorframe of your heart and your life with the blood of Jesus. It may have been a day or an evening. It may have been over the course of weeks when this, this dawned on you and something new happened inside of you. But if you've made that decision, you know that inside of you, when you make that decision, if it's real, there's a, there's a, there's a click, there's a switch, something happens. And things begin to change. Something brand new is planted inside of you that comes to life grows and bears fruit. I want you to remember that decision point this morning, and I want you to reflect on that with thankfulness because, because you're rescued. If you have never made that decision, then as you come this morning, I'd like for you to make that decision now. I'd like for you, as you come, I'd like for you to pray, Jesus, make this real for me in me and through me even now and if you make that decision today for the first time I'd like to know about that can you tell me before you leave or can you email me ed at gatewaychurch.org I'd love to hear because this is a decision that changes everything for the rest of your life it changes everything it's the most important decision that you and I will ever make and it, it is a decision that has implications for eternity so I'm going to invite you to come this morning uh, and participate in this remembrance of what Moses uh, commanded the children of Israel to do and the foreshadowing, the adumbration that that offered and what Jesus eventually did for us. I want you to remember as you come. Come as you feel led. There are four tables around the room. You'll come and grab a cup and you'll grab a piece of bread and then return to your seat we'll participate in this together but uh, let me say a word of prayer and then I invite you to come let's stand Almighty God we confess that we have sinned against you in thought word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've said things. We've done things. We've looked at things. We've bought things. This week. that have been a dishonor to our design and to your desires. We humbly repent. We ask you to forgive us and rescue us, Lord Jesus.
thank you for your blood painted over the door frame of our hearts and our lives. Father, speak now to every heart here that is not surrendered. Lord Jesus, our capitulation to you is complete and eternal, and we can do it willingly and join you, or we can have it overwhelm us. The consequences for us will be dire, terrible. For many of us, Lord, who have welcomed you into our lives, I pray you would help us remember this morning and celebrate the rescue 